All right, here I am today with Denton again in Empires of the Future, and today we're going to talk about 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health, Denton. We're going to walk out of here knowing how you're doing. Okay, great. Been I'm wondering a long time about this. Yeah. We're about to find out. Yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty open book. We can put me on the on the thing. I want to be doing some general talk. I think I've been looking for a book like this. Spiritual health has been a thing. I don't know if it's just because I was in youth ministry for a lot of years, um, but it's definitely an interest of mine. And I think something that even in the church is kind of a fuzzy topic. Um, spiritual health could be contrasted, obviously, with a sort of spiritual sickness. Um, but I think another useful thing to throw out from the start is that spiritual health is not the same thing as spiritual maturity. Right. Um, so that uh, it's just useful to think about what we mean um, by spiritual health. Um, but so, for instance, like spiritual maturity is a different thing. Kind of characteristics of spiritual maturity would be um, humility, kind of knowing your purpose and meaning, knowing your giftedness, and then maybe the fruits of the Spirit in general. It's just as you could think like a mature tree produces fruit, that is exactly the idea that is behind the fruits of the Spirit, is that when you are full-grown, you should be expected to produce things like uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That these are the things when you are mature in the Holy Spirit that will be present in your life. Um, meanwhile, uh, Simple evidences of spiritual health would be um, virtues, things like faith, hope, and love, and uh, prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude, uh, the ability to forgive uh, would be a sign of positive spiritual health. And you could think about, as, as we're kids, um, and we, we sometimes talk about how when we look at the world, we don't know what the world's like yet, but people get jaded, uh, and, it, and we all can remember sort of uh, what we kind of call the innocence of being a kid. But another, I think, thing that we're going to see today is that, well, you're naturally, you have some health maybe as a kid, especially if you haven't kind of become addicted to certain sins and lived in a sinful lifestyle. Um, you haven't seared your conscience. I mean, there are things about spiritual health that are right there. Um, but just a couple other things about just to, to, to throw out immediately to get your grasp on what spiritual health is. Um, the ability to give of yourself, time, talent, treasure, the, the energy. I mean, we're talking about spiritual energy, the, the, just the drive to go and do things. Um, we know when people are kids, they have physical energy, but spiritual energy is a different kind of thing. So having that urge toward productivity to accomplish things is a sign of good spiritual health and just that general mm -hmm. sense of life and vibrancy on that inner measure. Yeah. Um, the background to all this, like, why are we talking about this? Why is this something that pastors talk about? Here's one thing that's weird about this is that in the past, you would expect pastors to be the main people to talk to you about inner health. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you think has happened? Uh, so, so, for instance, the English Puritans, this is one of the things uh, Don Whitney talks about in his book, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. He says that uh, the English Puritans of 1550 to 1700 sometimes referred to ministers as physicians of the soul. Uh, and in our day, as in theirs, the timeless process of discerning one's spiritual health likewise involves questions and tests. But we're going to talk about some questions and tests today. But what do you think has happened in the last, say, 200, 250 years that has pulled people away from thinking of ministers as the main people to seek about spiritual health? Uh, well, I mean, certainly secularism has uh, a role to play in that. I think the, the um, sort of... Uh, arrival of and prevalence of expansion of things like psychology and, and things like that, that 
seem to propose a propose alternatives mm-hmm. to to the pastor as a physician, as the physician of the soul. Uh, we sometimes think we have actual physicians that are physicians of the soul, but uh, and I, I use that not to say that a psychologist would call themselves a physician of the soul, but at the same time, a lot of issues that I think are spiritual problems uh, are sometimes attempted to be treated by psychological or um, or um, or pharmaceutical, ph- yeah, or pharmaceutical right? solutions. Yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Spiritual problems that uh, that are attempting to be dealt with uh, with non spiritual solutions. Um, and psychology sometimes is one of those avenues that people will look at as an alternative. Um, and I think a part of why is maybe because it is to a certain degree easier, uh, because I think if we can, if we can understand things from a, from the point of view of psychology or understand the issues that we have in a way other than spiritually, the way I think we ought, then I think it does somehow feel less like something's wrong with us or, or less like it's our fault, maybe. Um, and, and to sort of combat against that, I would say there is a certain degree to which we would say as, as pastors and as Christians, like, um, not that your sin is not your fault, but at the same time, some of the effects of the fall that we see, uh, even on the human, uh, the human mind are effects of the fall, not necessarily results of your sin directly. Right. But we think, okay, I have a spiritual problem. It feels like it can feel like a condemnation maybe of uh, of that person, you know, when it's not necessarily. Now, a spiritual problem could very well be there because of a sin issue. Yeah. And and that is very often the case. Uh, but the solution to that is not one of of condemnation and uh, and works-based righteousness, but one of, hey, the gospel speaks into this. Therefore, as Christians, uh, we need to let the gospel speak into this, and we need to have other believers, other Christians, uh, speak into this. So, yeah, I think you we see a decline in that, um, which is why we see less of, as, as, yeah, as the Puritans say, seeing the doctor as the physician of the soul, or excuse me, as the pastor being the physician of the soul. Yeah. So I don't know. That's one reason. There's probably more. What do you think? You think that's yeah, more? And, and I mean, I think the uh, well, the atomization of self, the way we look at people as these individuals who then are plotting their own course, not tied to anything you know that they've come from. When what you know, uh, these are basic worldview problems. Like you, none of you decided. No one hearing this decided to be born. Uh, they, nor did they manage to keep themselves together for the first few years of their life. Uh, and so that where you come from matters. And even our ideas about what, what the kind of things that you're talking about, I mean, psychology lived. I, re- I remember a while back, this is years ago, I was like, you know, I don't understand how we went thousands of years of human history and didn't notice like, hey, we have souls or we you know there's uh, there are minds in our hearts like we ought to do like why did psychology come along so late well before then psychology lived underneath two bigger umbrellas uh theology and philosophy and if mm-hmm. you look back at sort of the history of knowledge unfortunately one of the things that has happened in the west in particular is we've separated out knowledge sort of the the, the same way we view ourselves as like these individuals we also like to take 
spheres of understanding and separate them out completely from where they've lived. And that's also not a very good approach to understanding knowledge. I mean, uh, if psychology could still live underneath philosophy, you would realize like, hey, you're asking what is my soul for a reason? And it needs to then go back to those bigger reasons because if there's a purpose to life, then the state of your soul matters. If there's not a purpose of your of life, then it, it might not matter. And so these things live in bigger spheres. Um, and that's, I, I think, a big part of our problem. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges that we face because we have these possible quote unquote solutions. Uh, whereas uh, in a lot of ways they should be considered trade-offs. Like most of the time, pharmaceuticals are a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Um, you are altering the chemistry of your body. Um, anyone who is sort of even something, you know, like common, like, uh, aspirin, you know, look, you can only take so much of that before it's hard on your organs. Right. None of these things are as simple as I have this problem. Therefore I will do this thing and it will just be an unavoidable good. It will be a simple fix. It's like, now, unfortunately, most things right. don't work that way. And what we want is we want things to work that way. Right. Um, and you know, it's, it, and it, look, it's complicated. It, it would be nice if some things weren't complicated, but man, the more you look, most things are complicated and we would like for it to be simple. And so, yeah, this is our proposal today is that, um, I do believe that pastors are better physicians of the soul than psychologists, mm-hmm. um, than, than counselors. Uh, we're living in a weird time since sort of what was built on the backs of sort of the psychological revolution of the last couple of centuries is therapy. The idea of therapy. I, there are books coming out now, like this year about that. They're just, Hey, look, there are dangers of therapy and folks, here's the deal. There are dangers to everything Mm -hmm. because life is dangerous. There are dangers to church. We'll be the first. I mean, we just recently did a podcast about here's some of the things that you really got to watch out for that church has challenges. There are dangers wherever you go because you live in a fallen world. Yeah. One of the things we look forward to is you will one day not live in a dangerous world. You live in a world where there is peace, but we're not there yet. And so there are dangers to everything. And yes, there are dangers to therapy. And to, to delineate some of them, uh, therapy teaches you to focus on your feelings. Feelings are not the end-all be-all, but therapy f- focuses on feelings. And it can drive something called rumination where you sit and you think like, wow, this issue that I had. Well, it's proven that if you focus on the traumatic, negative, bad events in your life to the exclusion of a lot of other, well, it, that's, that's the definition of how to be unhealthy is to mm-hmm. focus on the harmful things at the expense of the good things. Um, obviously, one of the dangers of therapy is the cost of it uh, <laughs> and, and the fact that, uh, okay, well, when will it end? What, you know, is, are there five sessions? What's typical? Uh, who knows? Right. Um, because that's, I think, to throw out three uh, just quickly, uh, one of the dangers of therapy, too, is the subjectivity. When are you done? Yeah. When is the end? Uh, it, there is no exit plan. You know, if you if you break your arm and you go in and you see a doctor, they make a plan. And, you know, anybody who's had a broken arm, you know, all right, typically you're in that cast about six weeks. And then after that, they cut it back off and you go, all right, I guess I'm going to have to start using this thing again. Mm-hmm. Um Yes, that's simpler, but it is a danger to have this subjectivity where you don't know what the end of it is. And so you need to know the dangers of these things. And this is especially applicable, applicable to children who, um, if you're an adult, you can be talking to someone. And if they give you advice, you could go, you know, 
I think I'm, I'm, I'm not into this. I, I think that I, I, I'm not going to go along with this. Well, as a child, kids are there not by their own choice. Yeah. And they don't know when to cut it off and to say that's enough. Um, so uh, those dangers are present. And yes, I am saying that your pastor is going to be a, a greater help because your pastor sees a bigger picture. And you know, all your pastor really is trying to do, a good pastor is trying to lead you to trust God, to walk with the Lord, to walk in the Spirit, and, and to know why God made you and what your purpose is in the world. That is, that is what you're after. So obviously in this, I'm pointing you to a Bible-believing church, uh, not yeah. just any pastor, not just anybody who's claimed the title, but really that, that will tell you explicitly, my purpose is to teach you the Word of God, that you would walk with Him, and you would know Him, not that I can then try to run your life or anything like that. Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing, you know, where, where you can go from from one doctor to another, and you can, you can not as well, certainly the best case scenario is if you've had a doctor who knows you and knows has known you for some time, but, uh, but by and large, you can go to a new doctor, he can look at your labs that you've had done previously from other doctors, he can look at your medical history, all that stuff kind of travels with you. That's not really the case when it comes to uh, your spiritual health and with your pastor. Um, uh, as pastors, we don't have the ability to, well, let me look at your chart from your previous right, pastors, right. previous churches, things like that. Um, the only way to really have uh, an effective spiritual health, uh, spiritual doctor, doctor of your soul, as far as a pastor goes, is if you have a pastor that you allow to get to know you well uh, and and to really walk through life with you. Um, that's, that's the only way there is no, there is no chart to look at as pastors to, to see how people have, have been doing what areas they, they're struggling in. Um, there's none of that. And so it's all the more encouragement to, and if you're not in, in a part of a local church, uh, let this be as if you haven't heard enough from our podcast, uh, let this be just one more opportunity where you hear us say you need to be a part of a local church. Yep. Yeah, uh, because what is what is ideal is if your pastor is one of the people who know you. You you want to be known by a small group of people well and then your relationships just expand out from there in your local church. That's we all want to be loved and known and known and loved and that's where you can have it happen. Yep. Uh, that's and in this broken world that is the place that God has worked to have a people and that group of people, the redeemed people of God, is where you can be known and loved, and that's 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 where that design finds its place. Yeah. Um, and and so to that end, I mean, that's why Don Whitney uh, wrote this book. He, you and I were just talking before the podcast. He's one of our uh, favorite professors from the seminary. Um, Don Whitney is. Uh, I, I don't know him personally, and you right. you had him for an online class, right. um, but. Uh, good reputation. His writings have been very helpful to me. Uh, we've reviewed before his uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, which I think is a very helpful book and will be referred to in here. Um, but we're so we're using his book. I, I have found it very practical and useful um, from this standpoint. And he says himself that his purpose in these pages is to act as a physician of the soul. And in a similar way that you would go to a doctor and there at the initial visit, there would be questions and there would be tests. He's giving questions and tests here. And so he says, you know, this, the idea here is with the help of the Holy Spirit, enable you to self-diagnose your spiritual health. Mm -hmm. and, and the encouragement, obviously, from us is 
talk to other people about this. Anytime you're just trying to self-diagnose, we're all biased. We all, and we all are just, in the, and this is actually pretty comparable to physical health. We, we have an incentive to kind of go, ah, it's not as bad as, you know, Yeah. <laughs> surely I don't have to make that much of a change. It's like, well, listen, get yeah. other people in on this as much as you can. Yeah. It also takes, it, it takes a, a big dose of humility too. And yep. you have to be willing to hear, um, hear areas where you might not be the most healthy spiritually. And that can hurt sometimes. It can be hard, you know, but like you would never get mad at a doctor who says, oh, it looks like you have this issue going on with your health. You ought not to get mad whenever you ask someone to to help you diagnose your spiritual health, which is what, what we're kind of doing. If then they help point out, I think in this area you're, you're, you're struggling or there's an issue, uh, you ought not get mad at them for that, you know, right. but accept that. Uh, be thankful for their honesty and, and pray that they're gracious when they tell you that. I think I think most brothers and sisters in Christ would be, especially if you approach them, uh, but be willing to listen to that and, and and to grow and to know what are the areas in which my spiritual health is lacking. Yeah. Um, and so the only other sort of note before we jump into them is that he says, the quote, for there to be health, of course, there must be life. I wrote this book with the assumption that its readers would possess the eternal life given by grace to those who know God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So yes, if, if you have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and trusted him, that is the very first step towards better spiritual health. You want life and there is not life. We don't self-generate life right. any more than any... You know, if you were to go and put a little small baby out in the woods, that that baby, whatever kind of baby it is, an animal, it will die. Uh, We don't generate our own life. We need to go to the one who gives life. And so that's where we start. All right, then we're ready for the 10 questions. I think so. All right. So the first question is, do you thirst for God? And I I think you could start and go, I I don't know. Well, uh, let me help a lot. Thirsting for God means thirsting for holiness, to be clean and pure. Uh, it means also the, the what they call the unity of the three transcendentals, which sounds really weird, but do you love truth and goodness and beauty? Um, and, I, and I think as you begin to flesh these things out, you go, oh, yeah, I mean, I, we all are drawn towards these things. And we don't just want them a little bit. We want them infinitely. Uh, but what do we do with that? Uh, is is the challenge. And, and so this is a great place to start because inside of here, uh, I think this is uh, fleshed out in, in such an interesting way because at first he says there's a thirst of the empty that when you have not, when you want truth and you're afraid. I mean, I remember being in high school and afraid. What if it's not such a thing? What if this is what I want? It's not even there. And I mean, being afraid that that could be the case. Uh, that is the thirst of the empty. Mm-hmm. Um but I think all of us want, uh, like, I think most of us probably would lean towards one of these things strongly and that that sort of sets our course in, in a lot of ways, uh, spiritually, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. It reminds me of what, what Jesus says in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, yeah. sake, uh, for they shall be satisfied. Um, and this, uh, this, I think, is one of those ideas that, especially when we first come to faith in Christ. I think this is one that, that comes on very strong. This deep desire for the Lord, this desire for holiness, this, this, this desire for His presence, um, something that, that comes on very strong, but that can over time, um, with, with, in a sense, a, a decline in our, in our health spiritually, can 
wane Mm -hmm. and we can find ourselves going, man, I don't desire those things the way I ought to whenever I first came to faith in Christ. And to a large degree, we'll, we'll notice that with, with a lot of these where initially when a person comes to faith in Christ, you see a lot of these things sort of, sort of explode and, and, and kind of burst onto the scene and be there and then wane over, over time. But I don't think any of them more so than this one, uh, where it's something that right away, whenever we are introduced to the, the beauty of God, uh, when, we, when we come to know Him, see Him truly and rightly, and we understand who we are before Him, um, it, it, is, it can be breathtaking and, and overwhelming, and, and we give, come to a point where we just can't get enough of it, and yeah. we desire Him more and more and more. And the beauty, uh, the part of the beautiful thing about thirsting for God too is that it is not a thirst like a thirst for water when there is no water. It is a thirst uh, for which there is satisfaction, right? And it's found in God. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's definitely one of those things that if you want to know what it what it feels like and and whether or not you do thirst for God, I would consider think back to when you first uh, became a Christian, right? Uh, or if you've been a Christian as long as you can remember, uh, maybe think back to those th- seasons in life mm-hmm. uh, and, and what what it felt like to really just hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's uh, what you're referring to there is a very useful because he also characterizes something that happens, and I think it happens to all of us who have at some point said yes to Jesus and then done the thing that we typically do, which is to try to sort of integrate, let me keep some of this junk (laughs) and try to put that together with this new good stuff that God wants me to get into. Um, and, And he calls this the thirst of the dry. And he says, quote, a Christian soul becomes arid in one of three ways. The most common is by drinking too much from the desiccating fountains of the world and too little from the river of God, as it refers to in Psalm 65. Um, if you drink the wrong thing, it can make you even more thirsty, he says, end quote. And that is a great example of how spiritual things mirror physical things. And I think this absolutely happens, that we mix the things of the world with drinking from the things of God. And we have this weird, unsatisfied fullness that then we go, well, this is weird. This doesn't seem right. Uh yeah, that that thirst of the dry uh, is very comparable then to you've drunk out of a fountain that was contaminated. Your belly is not going to feel great after that. And what you want is you want pure water. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you ought to get some of that and see what you think. And so I think that's really helpful because spiritual things can be confusing. Uh, they, they, there, is, there is no, I mean, uh, to, to grow in Christ uh, is a educational path. You know, it's not like you would just say to somebody, hey, there's numbers, work it out. I expect that in a couple of years you'll be doing calculus. Like, no, no, like you're going to need some instruction in that. Um, This is a real thing. Real things have an order to them and you can't just make it up as you go. Uh, You won't. There'll be some of it's too hard to figure out. Um, And so that thirst of the dry is is just really important uh, to me. Uh, now, the third one is the thirst of the satisfied, which I think is an odd category, but what, what, what you do see, and you see this especially, I think, in the writings of Paul in the New Testament, where um, when you do grow in the Lord, you reach um, a point to where you, you go, well, I know I'm going to want this much every day of God. 
that you know Paul says I want to know Christ and and, and the power of his resurrection I, I that there's nothing else that I want that compares to this and that there is then going to be a continued desire because we are small little things we we don't we again we will not on our own have this self-sustaining uh life it will it will right. be us receiving this life from the Holy Spirit and God's work inside of ourselves um and so that that is there there are different kinds of thirst but some dangers within them yeah all right what do you got for number two number two are you governed increasingly by god's word Uh, and he he says this while the pharisees of jesus day and certain cult groups in our own show uh, that more is needed to know god and become christ-like than mastering uh, than the excuse me than mastering mega doses of scripture Uh, this still it is true that little input of God's word results in little influence of God's son. Uh, I think this is one where when you talk about the difference between spiritual maturity and spiritual health, I do think you see a fair amount of crossover. Um, as, as In other words, one lends itself to the other. That is a sure sign of, of a lack of spiritual health is a is a lack of of leaning into and trusting in and and um, and being governed by God's word. And while that is also a, a excuse me, while that is a symptom of spiritual health uh, decline, it is also something that we see in those who are less spiritually mature. Uh, the most spiritually mature believer, you know, perhaps it's someone who you've known for a long time, who's been a believer a long time. Uh, one of the things that you'll note about them is their ability to just allow the Word of God to, to direct them in, in a pretty dramatic way, in ways that that we think about sometimes, okay, well, I have these desires, I have these things that I want, that I like. It's very easy for us as human beings to justify our way into and out of things. Yeah. Very easy, yeah. even for believers. And to find ways to make... to, to a, in a sense, find loopholes in the scripture uh, as to why something that we want to do or desire uh, is okay or desire not to do uh, and, and how that's all right. Uh, the spiritually mature person, and I think, as is the case also, those who are practicing spiritually healthy habits are those who, when the Word of God lays it down, it's just, there's no question about it. There's no more wondering. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. If the Bible says that this is the thing that ought to be done, then this is the thing I'm going to do. If the Bible says this ought not to be done, then that just has no place in my life. And it's as simple as that. And it sounds simple to say. It's a lot harder in practice. Uh, but but it is, the again, one of those things that while it does also result in spiritual maturity, when you're serving your spiritual health, it's a good question to ask yourself uh, how, how much you're governed by God's Word, which starts with being in God's Word. Right. And knowing God's word and reading God's word, um, and so you you also see one one thing that is true about this. And Don Whitney also wrote the the book on spiritual disciplines. Um, as you're diagnosing yourself with some of these questions, you can oftentimes find okay, the solution to this diagnosis, if I'm lacking here, uh, comes from then turning to these spiritual disciplines as a believer. And, and finding some ways to help increase that and help that. And the obvious answer with this one is uh, you need to be in God's word more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, 
what's strange about our own hearts is sometimes our hearts uh, condemn us, as the Bible says, that we'll beat ourselves up for uh, things that we've done that were wrong, and we have this this kind of guilt. Uh, some of us were given guilt trips by by people uh, in our lives that people use guilt to manipulate us. So, well, we can be manipulated by guilt because our consciences are saying, "Hey, there's something wrong here." But what you need is you need the Word of God to tell you what do you do with your guilt. You you will not solve that issue. I mean, there's a danger in it that we'll go. I'll just really work hard and I'll prove myself. It's like, no, you'll never get free that way. The Word of God tells you how to deal with all of these various issues in your life. And and if you, if anybody hearing this has not uh, really had a lot of experience with it, and you go, I I mean, look, I was a doubter early on. It's like, look, don't give me a book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the Word of God is. As it says, living and active. This right. is a different situation than any book you've ever run into. God, in his word, will then shore up your heart. And you will see the, a living Jesus who then begins to work in your heart. And the, the, there is no other book that the Holy Spirit is going to use to sort out your heart and sift out the good and evil that is running around all over the place and to say, this is what is true and this is what is good and this is what you ought to be doing. Um, this is what you do with the sins of your past. Uh, dwelling on those, uh, good news. Someone has paid the price for those sins and, and there could be freedom from all of that. Uh, yeah, that it was real evil, there, which there's no excuse for. But guess what? Jesus knew that before you did. He knew what you were like before you did. So run to him. Um, so all of this is true, that to be governed increasingly by God's word, um, it, I don't know if that strikes everyone at first, uh, at first brush as something that's exciting, but what you are governed by if you're not governed by God's word is a seared conscience, which mm. might be some days telling you you're the best person who's ever lived. It might be other days telling you you're worthless and there's nothing ever good going to happen for you. That's not, you're not right. governed by a good impulse in that situation. Right. And you're, uh, whatever the case, even when it comes to dealing with yourself or whether it comes to dealing with those around you, um, the, the guiding principle is, is still always going to be self-focused and self-gain rather than uh, gain for the glory of God, yeah. um, which is a huge difference. Those, those who are governed by God's word desire his glory uh, above all else. Those who are not desire their own glory. Well, and I mean, not to mention the entire background of spiritual warfare that's present in the Bible that's like, yeah, if you are in your sins, you're completely vulnerable to all the attacks of Satan to say to you, oh, you are you are worthless and evil, and you will be vulnerable to every uh, every wave, uh, every every idea that might cross your mind, and you won't even know when you're when you're going to do something evil, you won't, won't even be able to know it. Because you'll lie to yourself and say, no, I, I've had a hard time, so obviously I should get to do this. Yeah. Um, it, it is just a mess that you're in that way. And so some other details about this. Um, Don Whitney, as you're talking about in Spiritual Disciplines, he talks about praying the Bible and meditating on the Bible, applying the Bible, that having intake. Just uh, There is not really a wrong way to read the Bible as long as you're doing it in context and right. reading it as it was meant to be read as you're seeking the truth of what it meant when it was written. And so go for it. Uh, the, the other nice thing about this that I can say is if you're not terribly sort of familiar with the Bible, listen, you will excel in one way or another, whether it's, you know, you might have a good 
ethic of reading, or you might have a natural uh, ability to apply as, as God renews your heart. He, he gifts all of us. And so it's, it's exciting to find out how God has gifted you. Yeah. All right, we're moving on then to number three. Are you more loving? Uh, now, this word love has been thrown around a lot of ways. So what we mean by loving is, do you sacrifice for others? Mm-hmm. Are you active, a doer? of love um not just some this is not saying are you able to manufacture feelings at will right that is not the gift here right Uh, and and frankly not what the bible ever means by are you more loving love is an action throughout the bible you can in fact know if if you love people and you can in fact know if people love you if someone is willing to sacrifice themselves for you they love you if they're not they don't love you uh, goodwill is an entirely different thing. Goodwill is wanting good things to happen to other people, but not being willing to do anything about it. Right. Well, that's that's totally different than love, which is I have certain resources and I am willing to give of them to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what it means. And and he, he says on this one, uh, let me get right to the point. Jesus said that love is the clearest mark of a Christian. A new commandment I give you. Uh, he announced in John 13, 34 to 35, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Yeah. And one of the things, too, is like uh, when you talk about it's you're right. It's not love is not just an emotion. It's not just um, wishing good for other people or having warm fuzzies. It's it's more than that. It's it's action. Um, and when you said earlier, when you said you can know whether or not you love someone or whether they love you based on whether or not you know they're willing to sacrifice themselves for you. Uh, when you say that and I know what you mean. You don't mean willing to die for you, right. uh, and that's that's it. You know, you mean every day, every day. Yeah, making sacrifices, whether it be sacrifices of time, of energy, of resources, yep. uh, for the sake of of you and you for the sake of others. That's that's what it means to love. And and he he talks about this. What he quotes from from John thirteen thirty four and thirty five, where Jesus says, "Love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love me." And literally, there's a great book by Francis Schaeffer called The Mark of the Christian, mm. uh, in which he he lays out this love for one another as the mark of the Christian, and not just the mark by which we are to judge ourselves, but in fact, the mark by which the world is is essentially judging us whether or not we are Christians, judging us whether or not we actually follow what Jesus says. Yeah. Uh, because Jesus says, uh, by this the world will know that you are mine, if you have love for one another, that is the the marker that he basically says, this is how the world is going to know right. that you're mine. This is how the world is going to know that we're Christians is by our love for one another. Right. And boy, that alone should give us a lot of, uh, of pause. And that should cause us to really stop and think and ask the question, am I doing this? Right. Am I loving this way? Uh, it, it is tough to know, okay, what, what is the metric? You know, even when he says, when he says, ask the question, are you more loving? Well, a part of the question is more loving than what? You right. know, uh, presumably, I think he's he's saying more loving than you were, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, right. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is a a question to be asked um, when it comes to you and the way you love other people. Do they know that you love them? Right. And how would they know? Yep. I think those are good questions to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he warns about counterfeits to love uh, so that, for instance, um, natural affection, like feeling positively towards people. Well, that's 
nice, um, but it's not love. Love is an action. And so feeling like, wow, you know, I've been loved by my parents, so I have a positive feeling towards them. It's like, well, good, but uh, let that grow to an action that you then mm-hmm. do something about it. Another counterfeit that he talks about is uh, love of self or the desire to, to please ourselves. I, I love this person because they do things for me. Well, that's mm-hmm. really you being uh, self-centered. <laughs> yeah. and, and a sign of immaturity is being self-centered or think that thinking that all praise, all good things ought to just be on a conveyor belt coming towards me. Right. Uh, that is a sign of immaturity uh, and, and not a good sign uh, and not any kind of sign of maturity or even positive spiritual health. Right. Uh, that, that kind of situation and, and this is this is a challenging thing because in our natural selves we all will go well I'd like to love people and then I would like it to be reciprocated I like it to come right back at me it's like yes that is the goal certainly but you will learn pretty early on that, that doesn't always happen right um, what does mature love looks like M- mature love look like mature love looks like I'm gonna love you whether or not it's coming back to me right right that's exactly right and 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 know that oftentimes um, it won't right. That's not to say that people are just a bunch of jerks, um, but as you know, if you are practicing love, you know that it is difficult. Mm-hmm. And not only is it difficult to just to love in general, but it's difficult to show effective love towards a lot of people. Yep, um, it's hard, and so you have to do it knowing that uh, that a uh, there's a there whether or not. Um, you have to do it knowing that there is a great chance you might not see the same sort of affection, the same sort of love reciprocated, but also graciously and understanding that uh, that our hope for our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we're showing love to is not just that they'll show love back to us, but that they will show love to their right. brothers and sisters around them. You know, right. it might be the case that you don't that you do some some great acts of love and kindness, charity towards towards a brother or sister in Christ, and they hardly ever do anything towards you. But it is a good thing if they are, in turn, turning to their, uh, to the brothers and sisters they have around them, and showing them love and kindness and, and affection in that way too. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is tough though. It's almost like when you talk about when you talk about loving not out of a self love or selfish kind of love. It's like alms giving in a in a manner that everyone knows about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like um, on an individual level, not. You know, this doesn't necessarily happen all that much, but, but like bragging about how much money you give to an organization or, or I don't know, whatever the case may be in a very Pharisaical kind of way, um, where a, a Pharisee in the New Testament, uh, might have given offerings in a way that they came very proudly and boldly, uh, in a way that everyone would hopefully know and see that they are giving and give great, a great sum of money. Um, but that is not the goal, Right. right. Uh, and that is not a picture of of love. And in this particular case, I'm talking about you know giving to the poor. But you you'd use that in any other context. Um, we all know the temptation towards loving out of a a selfish kind of love of what we might get in return. Yeah, yeah, and that's not good. Yeah, and so he summarizes uh, just the the three ways that we would grow. He says, growing Christians will grow in love for other believers first. Love for the lost. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. It's right there. Uh, and third, love for their own family. Um, and so that's what we're seeing. All right, so number one was do you thirst for God? 
Number two, are you governed increasingly by God's word? Number three, are you more loving? And what is number four? Number four, are you more sensitive to God's presence? Um, whenever someone talks about God's presence, Jackson, uh, what what does your where does your brain go? Okay, this one is, uh, I think, in a lot of ways, such a, an interesting and challenging story because the way that I drove um, a lot of ministry for a while is I would want. Uh, especially in youth ministry, you're at camps or something, right? And mm-hmm. you have this sense, like this emotional experience where mm-hmm. it's like, all right, we sensed God's presence. We cried a lot. Everybody got real with each other. We talked for a long time and man, we did it. And I noticed for years that I would, you would try to set up situations where that would be the thing that yeah. happens. And um, I think one thing that happens then over the years is you go, well, okay, one, you can't manufacture that. Yeah. Um, two, what is the actual value of that specifically, because um, you begin to ask, like, okay, am I sure that that is all? Like, the presence of God is the is exactly what is happening there, and then then is like, what? Where is the presence of God on like our Sunday mornings? What what is the deal there? Yeah. Um. So I, I've had a lot of questions around this one, um. But I I will say that we do all of us we long for a sense of God's presence and what is meant by this. I mean, what you see in the Old Testament, um, God's presence is tied to uh, mountaintop types of experiences where there's music and there is togetherness and that this is a long-standing issue that people have. We have a sense of what it is to be spiritually dry and empty and we have a sense of when we're full and we all seek to be full and we then who look at the Bible at all go, God can fill me. Okay, then how do I get to the presence of God? I mean, in the Old Testament, the presence of God is this this powerful, distant, and dangerous thing that once a year the 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 high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and then if he offered the sacrifice rightly, then he then could usher everyone into the presence, but he was really there in the dangerous presence of God because if he did wrong, he would be killed on the spot. Sure. And the whole thing about tying a rope around his legs so they could drag him out if he was dead because if anybody else goes in there after him, well, then they'd be dead too, and that'd be a big problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, so, you, yes. Um, but I also, where my mind goes, because I'm just like you. I thought the same thing. I thought when I hear this, where where the negative place my mind goes is oh yeah the the church camp experience the the emotions um, I, I've been in plenty of those revival camp meetings right quote now. unquote where people say oh I really felt the presence of God yeah. here today like he really was there today um, there's a large part of me that nowadays is like yes he was there just as he is with us right now just as he will be tomorrow. Just as he will be at the church service that maybe doesn't feel like he is there. Um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because I, I do think 100%. That's what we oftentimes think of the emotional experience. Yeah, and that's where I think most all of us start with sort of the idea of the presence of God. Yeah, you've, you feel it, quote unquote. And notice he doesn't say, do you increasingly feel God's presence? He says, are you more sensitive to God's presence? And I think what that means is it, it means an awareness and an understanding of the reality that God is present, that he is near to us. And so where my mind also towards sort of goes um, is less into kind of the temple understanding of God's presence, uh, Mount Sinai understanding of God's presence, though in a very significant way, those are good representations. But I think too about, uh, about the story of Joseph. 
who, when his brothers betrayed him and cast him into a pit, the Bible says God was there with Joseph in that pit. When Joseph was uh, in Potiphar's house and was experiencing great success and everything that, that, uh, that he did in Potiphar's house, it prospered. Potiphar's house prospered because of him. God was there with him that, so mm-hmm. the, and the high and the low. And then when he's cast into prison after he's wrongfully uh, accused of, of, uh, of mistreating Potiphar's wife, and he's kind of in the lowest of lows again, the Bible says God was with Joseph. Right. I think that's uh, largely where my mind goes and what I think he, he would have us to feel here and, and, and to understand when he says, are you more sensitive to God's presence? I think it means in all circumstances that you are more aware that God is with you, that God is imminent he is the word he uses. Uh, he says, uh, says as we grow closer to him, generally speaking, we should discern his imminence more readily and more often. And I think that is what it means to... Uh, to be sensitive to God's presence, yeah. not not be in situations where our emotions are evoked uh, extra strong necessarily. Though the presence of God can be a very can 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 draw out emotions yeah. certainly, but there are also plenty of those occasions when people talk about feeling God's presence in some worship service or or camp meeting or whatever, where you can have those kinds same kinds of emotions, and yet God can be very much opposed to what is happening. Well, and. Um, one thing that comes to my mind on this as well is that um, as you grow in Christ and as you, one of the strangest things as you do increase uh, kind of um, your spiritual, as your spiritual health increases, I say it like that, um, you see that what you're doing in your sins is trying to get out of God's presence and that then you begin to go, wait, is that really what I want to do here? Um, and you recognize how how foolish and how terrible that is that 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 in your sins you're going you know i just want to be away do my own thing uh, for for this amount of time um and then you value his presence and mm-hmm. and you you know god's presence is a very strange thing because we all read these you know like well god's apparently present everywhere you know it's like mm-hmm. well, okay so what <laughs> what's the big deal i mean if god's everywhere then well no but uh it's it is a big deal to be positively in god's presence yeah. and to desire his presence um and that I, I think another thing that you're pointing towards is that you realize um as you go on that if you're obedient you will have periodically this good sense of God's presence, but that obedience doesn't just guarantee some sort of definite feeling every day. Right, right. Now, now disobedience can guarantee you a feeling of alienation and and all the things that come with sin and, you know, the Mm -hmm. guilt and confusion and stress and anxiety of these sorts of things. And so obedience is absolutely preferable because those periodic, you know, unpredictable times where there you feel wonderful in God's presence is is so much better than the alternative. Um, but it's not always predictable. It's yeah. Not. Yeah, I think some of the emotions or some of the things that that I would point to as feelings of of really a healthy understanding of of God's presence means hope in the midst of whatever circumstances, peace in the midst of whatever circumstances, joy in the midst of whatever circumstances, all of these because because in all of these circumstances, God is present, yeah. and He is with His people. He is near to us, uh, and and that's a, that is a reality that, that will bring emotions, um, but it will, it will oftentimes bring emotions that aren't 
necessarily in line with what the world would say are appropriate emotions for a season. Whenever we are hurting or in pain, we can have peace because God is with us. Whenever we are, are just going through the worst of times, whether we lose our job, whether we um, lose a family member, uh, we can have hope. Yeah. We can have joy because God is with us, even in those times and in those places. Yeah. A uh, short story before we leave this one um, about uh, Augustine. Uh, in his time, there was a, a pagan man who was holding up an idol uh, at him and saying, I'm tired of this. You know, here's my God. I can hold my God. I can see my God. Where is yours? And Augustine replies to him, I cannot show you my God, not because there is no God to show, but because you have no eyes to see him. Mm. Uh, it is one of those mysteries. Uh, God is spirit. We, we know this, um, but it's not as if we have no sense of his presence. Yep, that's right. All right, then. So number five, do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? Here's an unlikely John Calvin quote. Probably people don't think of John Calvin in this way, but here's a John Calvin quote. Uh, there is nothing in which men resemble God more truly than in doing good mm -hmm. to others. There is nothing in which men resemble God more truly than in doing good to others. Why? Because God is every day giving all of these good things. It's not by accident. Every good thing that's happened to you today is because God went, yeah, I wanted you to have that. Everyone. I mean, the Bible specifically says every good and perfect thing is from above. Every good and perfect gift. It's God saying, I wanted to give this to you. So all of those good things are directly from the hand of God, not some accident. And so if you do good to others, you then are mirroring God. You are doing what God does all the time, giving good gifts. This one is immensely practical and also goes hand in hand with the question of, are you more loving? Um, because if you are more loving, it helps clarify uh, what we mean when we say that. Um, when you ask that question, uh, and, and it is a very easy one to, to diagnose. And when I say easy, I don't mean that it, not easy it feels to do, good. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard, but it's easy to diagnose because it's, it's, it's as simple as asking the question. Uh, do you have a concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? And the question goes beyond just, do you have a concern as in saying, Oh yeah, I do. I have the concern. Great. Well, I'm spiritually healthy then. no, the question implies, uh, do you seek to rectify them then right. and, and provide for them in their, in their need? And, and an example of spiritual needs, we think about physical needs. Those are pretty easy to, to not understand, right? Person needs food, person needs shelter, person needs um, supplies for, for living and for sustaining themselves. Spiritual needs are, in a, in a sense, a little bit maybe tougher, and I say that because I think to a large degree it can be way easier to prepare a meal and take a meal to someone than it is to sit down with someone and say, let me just walk through this situation with you. Yeah. Both of those things are needed, for example, in the case of a family who's lost a loved one. Yeah. They need just a meal, just something to sustain them, to help them have their strength. But what they also need, and what is sometimes a lot harder, is they need they need spiritual care. They have spiritual needs that need to be met. And those spiritual needs are, are frankly, can be a lot more exhausting and a lot more difficult to, to meet them at and to, to help them with. But it's what they need. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This one is, I think, um, another really interesting one to compare to physical reality that, look, if you are so hungry or so thirsty that you are near death or, you know, you are in really bad shape physically, 
if somebody comes to you and is like, hey, what about these five people around you? How are they doing on hunger and thirst? You're not going to have any idea because all you can think about if you're super hungry and super thirsty is I'm really unbelievably hungry and thirsty. Um, but then as you then are brought back to life, you begin to notice the state of others around you and how they're doing. And so this is an easy comparison right here that as you then receive life and as your spiritual health grows, you will notice how others are doing mm -hmm. as well. Uh, this is a great quote from, uh, this is from the second century from Aristides, a Christian philosopher uh, from Greece, who, who looked out and he saw what Christians were beginning to do. And this was completely foreign to this world. And, and so those of us who have only uh, familiarized ourselves or only know about sort of the current time may just assume that widows always had some kind of way that they were taken care of. No, in history, not at all. Um, the vulnerable were basically just taken advantage of in uh, pre-Christian societies. Sorry for you. If you don't have power, you better hope you can find some way to make yourself useful to those who do have power. Um, but here's what he saw and what he said. He said, they, the Christians, they love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored, and they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. And this is not. Uh, human nature with, uh, without any help from God was a lot more on display in the days before Christ. People just took advantage of other people in general, and those who found themselves, uh, whether they were lepers or they were injured in a way that they couldn't be helped, well, then you were just in bad shape because mostly people didn't help you. Um, but the rise of Christianity meant that those who were weak were then helped. Mm-hmm. And that is a change in history, uh, and, and it echoes on throughout history. Uh, a, a reformer, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, founded orphanages, as well as uh, George Whitfield. Uh, these are uh, George Whitfield, a great uh, evangelist uh, in the 1700s. Uh, William Wilberforce persevered for decades in Britain to end slavery. William Carey was responsible for ending the practice of widow burning in India and on and on. These are changes that have happened in history because God raised up and brought to life Christians and then they saw needs in the world and they said, I'm not going to let this happen this way. And they on down to our time, right. whether you're talking about Billy Graham who spoke primarily to spiritual need but knew physical needs were a part of that. Or you talk about a Mother Teresa who dealt primarily with physical needs, but knew that spiritual needs were there as well. This is something that anybody who grows in Christ will realize that we take care of people's temporal, their physical needs, as well as their spiritual needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a cool thing to think about the history of the church. Uh, and there's a reason why so many hospitals, orphanages, um, Mish, uh, yeah, like uh, when I say missions, I don't just mean spiritual care, but I mean like relief, aid, and, and work that's done. There's a reason why a lot of them bear the names of right. of religious organizations uh, and religious people uh, is because of, and I, I say this is, a, this is a cool thing, right? Uh, that as Christians, we're part of a rich history, not just of theology, but of uh, care for the poor yeah. and care for those in need. And, and it's a pretty cool thing to, to, I don't know, it's pretty cool to look back on and think about. I just enjoy reminiscing even about that. And even uh, to this day, I think it's a very cool thing that the, uh, the Southern Baptist uh, Convention has its, its own um, arm of, of, uh, what, of disaster relief. Yep. And whenever disaster strikes in the United States, one of the first groups in 
uh, is the yeah. is the disaster relief arm of the of the SBC, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, and you yeah. and I have known uh, great men who have oh, yeah. just set themselves up. I mean, even retirement that that's what they do in retirement. Oh, yeah. It's just when a natural disaster hits, they roll in there and help people get oh. the chainsaw out and get the work done. Yeah, it's it's actually a pretty cool thing at, at First Southern to think because you mentioned retirement. Yep, uh, th- there are. And I don't just mean like one or two. I mean like a dozen men at First Southern that I've known that literally like in their retirement, that became one of the things that just marked them was that, oh, a tornado came through down in Kentucky. Looks like I'm going to Kentucky for the next week. Yep. Uh, and I not in like a begrudging way. It's not a begrudging on, on yeah, mine. No, but yeah. like, no, let's go. Yep. Uh, hurricane strikes. All right. Let's pack up, get everything we need. Let's hit the road and go down there. Uh, the opportunities to not just not just be there to give people the the food that they need, the drink that they need, shelter, uh, but all the way, proclaim the gospel to them, pray with them, care for them in every way. Yeah. It's pretty cool. All right, what do you got for number six? Number six, do you delight in the bride of Christ? For those of you who don't know, the bride of Christ would be the church. Um, Again, we've already talked about the church a little bit, but uh, but it is a good question to test your your spiritual health and to diagnose it, um, and that is what is your commitment to and love for the local church. Yep. Uh, yep. You will find there people different from you. People not had your have not had your same background, have not had the same life experience, um, and this is God's redeemed people. Uh, and you will find. I mean, it, I, this is one that experience experientially for me has definitely been powerful as you go. These, these are people that are different ages than me, different circumstances and situations. You know, I'm from a small town. I have a definite background, as everybody does. But then you see this is a person who loves God and has had a whole different set of experiences. And to be able to learn from them, to be able to spend time with them, uh, to sit in, you know, small group Bible studies, uh, it, is, it is a powerful thing. Yeah. He says, I think this is pretty good. He says, in one sense, I'm asking you, uh, if you delight in the church as a whole, not each Christian in particular. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, after all, the bride of Christ is the church, not individual Christians. Jesus is not a polygamist. That's correct. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny and all pretty true, right? Yeah. Uh, we sometimes uh, do have a tendency in our day and age to think of our of our faith, of um, the relationship we have with Christ purely in individualistic terms. And indeed, each of us individually is in union with Christ. And there are individual ramifications of that. But the the New Testament speaks so frequently and so heavily about the church as the bride of Christ and so mm-hmm. much about about what Christ has done for us, for the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we sometimes will take many of those statements and terms and, and change it from what Christ has done for the church to what he has done for me. Yeah, sure. Um, you are included in that. Right, yeah, but the but, primary context is, yeah. <laughs> right, um, and so there are, there are going to be plenty of people at the church that you struggle to delight in that yeah. particular person. Trust me, there, there are going to be plenty of those people. But the question still remains, do you delight in the bride of Christ, uh, the church, which includes that person? Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's a much different question than, do you just enjoy every single individual person so much that you meet at uh, in the in the local church. Well, you're not going to. There are always going to be people that you find difficult. Right, yeah. Interpersonal relationships will include awkwardness, period. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, but it is your job 
to maintain fellowship, yeah. unity with, care for one another, even those people that you don't necessarily always uh, delight in. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can throw out just a whole lot of other things. My I am very thankful for the experience I've had. Like one thing that I can throw out that I know will be sort of unique in some ways that not everybody gets to do this, but I do think that we should aim ourselves toward doing this in some way. Uh, I throw out youth service projects where I've been able to serve alongside and see kids learn how to work. And, and learn what it means to roll up to like a senior citizen's home and to be there for two or three hours. And the change you can make, 10 students can make in their yard in two or three hours. Right. Putting all that energy to work and then seeing like, man, I, this is not bad at all. I came and it looked like that. And then now it looks like this. And seeing that together, I mean, that's not to mention, you know, like being at funeral meals and seeing what it is for people to come together after someone has died and to say, we're here for each other. Yeah. Um, and you see that a lot in the church uh, or baby dedications when you're standing at the front of a worship center and you have your child and you're going, man, I'm scared to death. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Yeah. But to look over and, you know, I mean, anybody who hasn't had a child yet to be in a church is incredible because people will come up to you and be like, some of this is going to be hard, but you'll be all right. And people, yeah. it's like you would join a fraternity. They come up to you yeah. and they go, look, you, I'm with you. I've got your back. You'll be tired, but it's worthwhile. It's great. And and that is how it is. That is the Loving the church at the end of the day is not hard work. You will see there's a lot you are missing if you don't know the church. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else you want to say about the church and the question of, uh, of delighting in the bride of Christ? I don't think so. Number seven, are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important for you? You've known this one was coming this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> he has a whole book on this. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a tough one uh, for, for me personally. Um, when I when I survey my Christian life, this has always been an area for me of of the of the spiritual disciplines that man, it's a struggle. Like I I think I can see in my life kind of a regular, um, steady increased love of the church, uh, increased uh, care for for one another. I think to a large degree. I'm not saying I'm perfect in all of these. Uh, I think I it's if you look at it on a graph, you yeah. would see that it's kind of been ups and downs. But I think there's been there's been steady growth, but I think this is an area of my life personally that has always been a struggle. Things like spending time in prayer, yeah. Things like being in God's Word regularly, consistently. Um, these, to name two, these are very difficult things for me. Um, and so, for maybe for those of you listening uh, who know that you're listening to two pastors talking, let me just tell you: these two pastors that are sitting here talking. Man, as one Absolutely. of them, I'm, I'm same, you, same, totally. For we me. Yes. we struggle with these same things, yes. and and I of hear all this, of the fruits of the spirit. Self control is not the one I put at the top mm. and go that one right there. God just started growing that on me. I can't stop it. It's just everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a disease. <laughs> yeah, we, it's just for me. This is a, this is a tough one, but it's good to hear. And like when you go to the doctor and they tell you things that you don't want to hear, um, you can become bitter about it. You can be discouraged, but that's not going to help you. Uh, the The answer is to to learn from this and to say, okay, what's the remedy? Right. What's the remedy? Right. And so anyone who's kind of going, I don't know, I'm not that familiar with spiritual disciplines. What are you talking about? Well, you could separate them into uh, personal and interpersonal. And so examples of personal are private reading and meditating on scripture, individual prayer, fasting, solitude, keeping a journal, spiritual journal, and these sorts of things. But then disciplines that, that require the presence of others are congregational worship, corporate prayer, the Lord's Supper, and fellowship. And so these things, they are 
for the purpose of godliness. Right. Uh, we do not discipline ourselves just because we, we're hardcore. No, it's not like that. The, the whole purpose of disciplines is to be pointed, pointed towards godliness, that these disciplines then result in godliness. And that's our goal. We want to be like God. Uh, mm-hmm. They are not the definition of godliness, right? Uh, they are, these 10 questions are meant to be taken as a whole in the same way that, you know, you could have uh, a weak heart, but good cholesterol. Well, that's your spiritual, your health is not good physically. And spiritual health is the same. You got to take these 10 as a, as a whole because this one, certainly the Pharisees had good spiritual disciplines, but that didn't mean they were spiritually healthy. Mm-hmm. And so every one of these is not meant to be abstracted from the others. Yep. That's All right, right. What do you got for number eight? Do you still grieve over your sin? Another good one. Very convicting question. Um, do you grieve over your sin? Do you does do the things which break the heart of God break your heart? There's a great uh, a great book called Valley of Vision. Are you familiar with Valley of Vision? Mm-hmm. It's a book of Puritan prayers. I forget the author, um, but it's it's very good in that it goes through all sorts of different categories um, uh, of prayer. Uh, there's thanksgiving. There's adoration. There's prayer regarding all kinds of different topics and subjects. And they're just written out prayers. Um, but there's one in particular, and I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it's about sin and conviction of sin. And and the prayer essentially prays and, and, and prays the Lord, forgive me for not being heartbroken over my sin. Yeah. And bring that about. Yeah. It, it is a good thing to pray and ask the Lord yep. to bring conviction of sin and to yep. break your heart over your sin. Because even as as believers, we can come so we can become so calloused, and so we can begin to become indifferent to sin. We can begin begin to come. We can begin to have hardened hearts. Yep. And that is a good indicator of where you are with regards to your spiritual health, is how convicted you are over your sin. And there may be seasons. This is true for me. There are some uh, sometimes whenever I'm really convicted over certain sins and not others. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then there are other seasons where I'm convicted over those sins and, and not as much over the others. Yep. Um, but the, the, the question certainly should concern sins in all areas, not just some of what we consider the graphic sins, right. um, the, the really bad ones, but also things like anger. Mm-hmm. I know I go through seasons in my life where I can just get angry like that and then just move along and not think anything of it mm-hmm. and wonder why other people think, think anything of it. Oh, I just got angry. No big deal. No, in that case, my anger is is a product of my sin because it's a product of selfishness, of pride, of of all these things, and it's easy to take something like anger and think no big deal. Yep. But no, anger oftentimes, depending on where it's rooted, and I'll go ahead and tell you the anger I'm talking about is not usually uh, a godly anger. Right. Um, is something that while we we accept as so common. Is yeah, I'm, in, I'm impatient with my kids. I get annoyed at you know my yeah. family or people around me. I mean, like the or other, the other yeah. day, you were telling me the trash can punched you. I did. And then I got you real got mad, real at, the mad at the trash yeah, can. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> it scratched my head, and I took it personally. <laughs> I say that just because, man, I know what I would have done. That trash can would have been on the ground. <laughs> I would have just laid into it uh, because of my because of my sinfulness and, yeah. and my uh, propensity to just getting angry and and reacting. Oh man, just spur of the moment. Yeah. It's ungodly. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, here's a quote from him, quote, I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness at the badness of my heart since my conversion than ever I had before. It has often appeared to me that if God should mark iniquity against me, that I should appear the very worst of mankind and that I should have by far the lowest place in hell, end quote. 
Uh, this is, reminded me of the, you know, Paul wrote in one of his final letters, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And I remember mm-hmm. one day I was thinking about that, uh, that verse there in First Timothy chapter 1, and I thought, why would he say that? And then I thought, wait, I know many more of my sins than I know anybody else's if I think about it, but I don't like to say, think about my sins. Yeah. And I know the quality of my sins more than anybody else's, but I don't like to think of what sort of sins those are. Um, and that Paul came to grips with that. And in yeah. his dealing with the Lord, he realized the state of his own soul. And then that this, this issue that, that Don Whitney notes, he says that, note that both true and false Christians, that is those who really are followers of Jesus and those who mistakenly think they are, may experience joy and comfort when the free grace of God and forgiveness is preached. But with real believers, that joy and sense of release from the guilt of sin is not without a simultaneous grief over the sins that have been forgiven. You know, Mm -hmm. you know that your sins have hurt people. You know that your sins have damaged your relationship with God, that yes, thankfully to the mercy and grace of God can be healed, but still that time you're not redeem that time uh sins are destructive and we give ourselves i mean give ourselves and our sins to the work of the devil who wants to steal and kill and destroy would join his team when we're in our sins and that is not any kind of team you want to be on um but there is then a sense of uh i should I, i do have grief over my sins and i want to be driven out of that grief and run to christ yeah it's a true thing that the more mature a believer comes and the more healthy they are spiritually, the more aware of their sin they are, the more yeah. sinful they feel, yeah. which is an interesting dynamic. Yeah. You would think that the, that the more healthy, uh, spiritually healthy a person is, uh, a believer is, the, the less they think about sin because they sin less. Yeah. Well, that's not the case. Uh, it is the reality of, of being a human being that sin is ever present. Yeah. And you become more and more aware of it the, the more you understand, the more you know God. Yeah. Number nine, are you a quicker forgiver? <laughs> That's funny to say, isn't it? It is. Are you a quicker you forgiver? A quicker forgiver. Um, James Coulter, here's a quote from him. Quote, the unforgiving spirit is the number one killer of spiritual life. Mm. End quote. Um, there is, I think, especially depending on um, how somebody might have been raised, this sort of like... Uh, it's almost as if some of us have been trained to hold grudges, mm-hmm. though some of us it is also very natural, but it is death to hold grudges, to think that, that somehow because you're so right that then you can't forgive people. Uh, that is spiritual death. And these are, this is one of the strangest things about spiritual matters is you feel so right yeah. to hold that grudge, yeah. um, but you're twisted up inside of yourselves. Uh, yep. Three times in the Gospels, Don Whitney says, Jesus directly connects our forgiveness of others with God's forgiveness of us. Mark eleven twenty five, Matthew 6, uh, 14, and also Luke six thirty seven, where he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. And he specifically also says, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Yep. If you don't forgive others, God Almighty will not forgive your sins. And these texts show that a forgiving spirit characterizes those who have been forgiven. Uh, everyone hearing should take that to heart, that the Bible says we love these sort of like verses we can put on the wall where here's this unilateral thing god will do for god so loved the world and these sort of things we don't i've never seen somebody put on their wall if you don't forgive others i will not forgive your sins but it is every bit as much in there yeah (laughs) so take it to heart yeah i mean you can't you can't i can't think about this without remembering the story that jesus told of the unforgiving servant Mm -hmm. who who came before uh before the the ruler and the ruler said you owe me this much money, and it was an astronomical amount of money. 
uh, the amount of money that he could never in a in a hundred years he right. could never repay the money that he owed, and so he begged and said, "Please, just give me time. Let me try to repay you this money. I I promise I will I will do what I can. I will repay you your money." And and ultimately the the ruler took pity on him, and said, "You know what? Your debt is forgiven. You can go ahead." Yeah. And he leaves. And immediately goes and finds one of his fellow servants, and and his fellow servant owed him a day's wage, and he demanded the money from him. He grabbed him, uh, and, and and demanded his money. Yeah. And when his when his fellow servant did the same thing that he did before the king, he he knelt down knelt down and said, "Please, please, I promise I will pay you your money. Just give me more time. Have mercy." And he refused, and he cast him into the prison. Yeah. And when the king heard about it. He was furious, and he brought him in and said, after all that I forgave you, I forgave you this debt that you could never repay, so much money, and you couldn't have compassion on this small amount of money that he owed you. Yep. A- and therefore, he said, you are going into prison, Yeah, right? Uh, it, it, it's it's uh, one of the cases that there's a song, actually, we used to sing at First Southern. It's called Freely, Freely. Yeah. And it says, freely, freely, you have received, freely, freely give. Yeah. Uh, go in God's name. And because you believe, others will know that I live. Yeah. Uh, the idea being, we have received so freely of God's mercy, of God's grace, of God's forgiveness. We ought to just as freely give it out to others. Yep. I say just as freely. We can never give it out as freely as the Lord. But it, that ought to be our model. But his example for, ought to drive us. Yeah. yeah, for what forgiveness is. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one detail, and, and this is definitely one that you, if, if you want, if you think about this more deeply, you'll want to read more uh, here. Um he specifically says that uh, you should be ready to forgive, and especially uh, when you see repentance, then forgive. This is he said, and he calls it a misnomer. He says that people do this wrongly. You'll see somebody, you know, like a mass shooting, and then people will kind of come out on the news, and he, what he, what Don Whitney calls like an un, a wrongfully motivated Christian will kind of say, oh, "We want to forgive these people," whether you know, just from the start, and. Um, what he says about the teaching of the New Testament, I hadn't thought as deeply about this because thankfully I haven't been in these situations where you have to kind of have these blanket open uh, statements of forgiveness for a really blatant wrong. Um, But he says that the general pattern is that we are ready to forgive. And then, so then when you see repentance, that is when you forgive this person. Um, So, so that detail there is important. All right, then, what's number 10? Last and finally, do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? And this is a good question. Uh, he says, uh, do you find more and more that the life you long for in heaven seems more natural to you than the one you are living on earth? Does it seem that your deepest longings were made to be fulfilled in another world? These are good questions. Yeah. A question, actually, uh, I think it's a, it's a C.S. Lewis quote. What does he say? You've said it on the podcast multiple times. But it's, it's something to the effect of whenever we find that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy us, it can only mean that we were made for another world. Right. Yep. Uh, something to that effect. Um, I was thinking about this recently. I actually talked about it in a sermon that I preached recently um, about there's a, a coworker that I worked with at the hospital who was wonderful. She was great, She and she loved the Lord. Uh, but we were having a conversation one time. She said, you know, I, I, I'm excited about heaven. Uh, but she said, I love my family. I love sort of the, the phase of life I'm in. I love, 
honestly, I love what God has done for me and, and sure. all the blessings that I have here on earth. So as much as I long for heaven, man, I'm not, I'm not ready to go yet, you know? And, and you know, I, I don't want to read too much into or, or, uh, I don't know. I would, here's what I said to her. I said, I get where you're coming from. That makes sense to me. But I will also say, I think that, that you are looking at the things that, uh, that are shadows of what is to come for believers. Yeah, sure. Um, and you are th- thinking wrongly. Whatever joy you experience from your family, whatever joy you experience from your home, uh, from, from all of the things here on this earth that we experience joy from. And she clearly has a lot that God has given her to bring her joy in this life. Yeah. Each and every one of those joys that we experience from those things are going to be infinitely outnumbered, outmatched, uh, are going to be not just quantitatively, but qualitatively so much grander in heaven yeah. when we are with the Lord. That yeah. that joy here on earth, even the most the most deep experiences of joy here on earth are nothing compared to the fullness of joy that comes from being with God and being with Christ. And so, like, take the greatest feeling you've had when it comes to your family or whatever it is. The joy that you will ha- that you will find in Christ Jesus when you are with Him will be that times a million. Mm-hmm. And I think when you when you begin to think of it that way, it begins to put it in perspective for you uh, and see just what it is that awaits believers. And it does, I think, increase our longing, increase our desire. Uh, but what what she was saying, I think, is true of a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I'm I would be totally fine with that from a standpoint of I mean I think what God has allowed us to have on this earth is is shocking. It would have been su- surprising to most people even up to a hundred years ago that the levels of health and prosperity that we are experiencing, being able to eat food like we eat, uh, to not have you know a toothache or some sort of thing that just besets. I mean, think about all the. Up until 75 years ago, we didn't have anything that would kill pain. Yeah. <laughs> the, the things that God has allowed us to have are amazing. We had so, alcohol. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, and, and so we do have many good things. And so one, you say, thank you, God, that I have those things. And thank you that yeah. there's not things that are going so wrong, you know, because there are things. I mean, what drives you towards a uh, desire for heaven is the evils and the the horrible elements of this world that will show themselves sooner or later um and so so yeah that's a i think one of the strange things about being alive right now is you can have situations where it's like man a lot of good things are happening for me right now it's like well good then thank god for it and look uh one day you will be thankful that heaven is there because uh the world is broken even inside of you um There's a great quote here, uh, Jonathan Edwards' quote, yet another one. Uh, He says, quote, But neither a longing to be in heaven nor longing to die are in any measure so distinguishing marks of of true saints as longing after a more holy heart. That we want to be right. We want to be right with God. We want ourselves to be made right. And then uh, finally, there is this uh, story by uh, Joni Erickson Todd. If you've never seen her speak, uh, she's a powerful speaker. She's been... uh, paralyzed for uh, over 25 years oh, and yeah, uh, long time. and speaks uh, joyfully about God, about yeah. what he's given her now. Um, and, and listen to this story from her. Uh, she says, people say to me, well, you must be looking forward to heaven, thinking I'm looking forward to getting my new body. And after more than 25 years in a wheelchair, it's true that I am. But more that than that, I'm looking forward to, more than I'm looking forward to my new body, 
she said with her voice choking with emotion. I'm looking forward to a heart without sin. Mm. That's incredible, powerful. Yeah. If you've never actually, I'll just say this real quick. If you've never like read about Johnny Erickson Tata or uh, or listened to anything that she's had to say or books that she's written, uh, check her out yep. and be encouraged. Yep. Because if there was ever anyone in this world that has a reason to be bitter, angry, uh, both at their status in life, but even more at God uh, for, for what they have had have had to experience. Johnny Erickson Tata is that person. Um, and yet, she's the kind of person that, above all, yep. uh, is the most filled with joy yep. and more thankfulness joy, to hope. the Lord. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's amazing to hear her talk. She said one time uh, that if she could go back and change it to where she, she was she paralyzed in a, in a diving accident, mm-hmm. uh, dove into, I think, a lake, and there was um, something hidden, hidden under the water, I believe. Uh, bottom line is she dove and basically broke her neck mm-hmm. and, and was and paralyzed. And she said, if I could go back and do it all over and never, never be paralyzed, never be confined to a wheelchair, never have all these health issues, and I, but yet... I didn't get to know the Lord the way I know him yeah, now yeah. And, and rely on him now. She said, I wouldn't take that trade yeah. because of, of where she is in life and, and her, her accident and the way that it's caused her to lean into God and to, and the intimacy that she has with the Lord that has resulted uh, by, by where she is. She says, I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take the trade. Yeah. I would rather be paralyzed and have the relationship with Jesus that I have rather than to have the ability to walk and run and, and use my body the way most other people can. It's not a good enough trade. I would rather have the situation I have with the relationship with the Lord that I have and the trust in him that I have. And then, Oh man, just like, yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. It makes me think, um, I'm using my legs and arms and mouth too much and, uh, not, Meditating on scripture enough, not spending time with the Lord the way I ought. Um, it makes me envious of, of Johnny Erickson Tata when she speaks like that. Hmm. Um, yeah. Cool person to learn about, cool person to read about. Um, wonderful diagnosis that we have here. Yeah, this of, is great. This just is a asking very helpful yourself book. these questions. Um, by the way, if you are in Evansville by any chance, I, I was able to pick this book up, uh, the electronic version off of Evansville Public Library. I uh, read it in my office. Didn't even have to go down there and get it. So <laughs> helpful books there. Yep. That's awesome. All right. So this has been 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health. And this has been Empires of the Future. We'll see you in the future.